0: Well, good morning. My name is Pastor Paul. I'm one of the co-lead pastors here with my wife, Pastor Britta. Uh, this weekend, uh, we had our elder board retreat. Uh, and the elders are uh, the group of leaders who gather together to help lead the church, to help uh, the things function, to discern and to pray for our congregation. And I, I just have to tell you, uh, after this weekend, this group of women and men is incredibly wise and discerning. And they are actually committed To following jesus together it is an honor to serve with such incredible leaders and to have uh knowing that this church is in good hands that this church is cared for it is attended to uh, by such incredible leaders Uh, but because we had this uh retreat this weekend uh my rhythm was a little bit different for preparing for the sermon uh things kind of shifted around right in schedules and so i was having an incredibly challenging time figuring out how on earth am i going to start this sermon like I had the content, kind of knew where some of the pieces were. I kind of knew what I wanted to talk about, but I wasn't sure, how am I going to start this? And so uh, our kids were with our grandparents this weekend, thanks be to God, Uh, just a little bit of a break. And so uh, Pastor Britt and I, we had a chance to go uh, on a date afterwards and just have some time together, just the two of us. Um, And so we went over to Bellevue, downtown Bellevue, to Bellevue Park, and we're just sitting in the car just like, oh, we just need to like, there's just a lot of thinking that happens when you talk with leaders, right? It's like, woof. So we just needed to kind of decompress. We had the seats kind of leaned back, the windows were open, and I was closing my eyes, just kind of resting. And I just was kind of wrestling with God, like, what on earth? How do you want me to start this sermon? Like, I had gone to some strange places to start. I won't uh, subject you to those things. Uh, but <clears throat> as, as I was sitting there, a car pulled up next to us to next, in the next parking spot, uh, and a family got out, and the parents were kind of talking with each other. Uh, And they were kind of working through the logistics of how they're going to get to the park. And the dad was kind of talking to his kiddo and, you know, let's leave Thomas the tank engine here in the car so we don't drop it, all this kind of stuff. Uh, And the dad then uh, said to his little one, okay, it's time to go. Let's hold hands. And he reached out and he held the hand of his little one. Now, for me, it was an instant like, that's it. It just clicked. But I have the distinct advantage that I know the rest of the sermon, so it makes a whole lot more sense to me why this clicked. Uh, But we'll kind of unpack that a little bit. But this image of a father reaching out for the hand of his child. There's so much that's communicated. Let's hold hands. Rather, can you immediately get an image of a parent holding the hand or a loved one holding the hand of a child? And how just what is communicated in that physical touch? I love you. I care for you. I want you to be safe. I want you to know where to go, and so I'm going to hold your hand as we walk together so I can show you where we're going, so I can lead you into places of safety, that I can guide you and walk with you as we are together. It's just such a a simple but profound image and picture of love, right, of this deep intimacy, this deep connection of let's hold hands. And I think this image is a, a beautiful one for us to think about our relationship with God, right, that as... God, our Father, God, the God of all the universe seeks to say, let's hold hands, let's hold hands, let me guide you, let me walk you as we're going. And especially this morning, I think this is a beautiful picture of what the gospel invitation is for people. The gospel invitation is to reach out your hand, right? To reach out and to touch God, to experience the goodness of God that we just sang about. There's a really tactile, real Thing that happens there, right? When you uh, hold a hand, when you hold the hand of your child, or you're holding the hand of a little one, you feel something, right? There, if there's real like love that gets just our whole body does something, and this is the invitation of the gospel for us this morning. Just reach out and touch God. So I want you to hold that image in your mind uh, as we kind of consider and as we keep going. Hopefully, it'll become more and more clear why this image all of a sudden just literally pulled in next door for me as I was wrestling without a start. And trust me, you've been saved from some other very interesting starts. Uh, but we've been, in, uh, we've been in this series on Acts this summer, and we've been working through the book of Acts and how uh, we, Pastor Britta talked about this a few weeks ago, it was an expansion of the known universe, right? That the people of God were Jewish by nature at the very beginning. Uh, and so as that happens, it starts to kind of grow and grow and grow. And so the gospel, the good news of Jesus starts to reach further and further and further and further and more and more and more and more. And so last week, Pastor Britta talked about the council at Jerusalem and how this group of Jewish, uh, early Jewish Jesus followers decided that the gospel is in fact also for Gentiles, right? That there are certainly, there's compromises for us to figure out how do we make this work. There were three things that they needed to do. But the inclusion, right, that the gospel is for all people, for Gentiles included in this. And so uh, they kind of came to that decision. And so Paul Uh, is sent to go and deliver this good news, to deliver the gospel to God's people and to these Gentiles who are included in the good news of Jesus. Now, you'll see up there uh, that we are on Acts 16 and 17, which is a lot of ground to cover, so we're not going to take a super long time. Uh, We're going to actually end in the end of chapter 17. But to kind of help paint the picture on how we get to where we're at, I wanted to bring up a map. Now, I will be honest, um, I'm not really a maps guy. Uh, let me clarify, I'm an absolute reliant on maps because I can't navigate out of a paper bag. So I need maps, but they're not like my thing, right? Like I'm not like, ooh, maps. But there's something about maps that I think are really important because it's gonna kind of help illustrate the spread of the gospel, like literally it's spreading. But also, like when you see a map, you see that it's real, right? These are real places. And for some reason, it kind of like shifts in my brain, like this is, people actually live here right? Like this actually happened. The stories that are in the Bible actually happened. It helps like visualize, oh, this is real. These are real places. Um, So I want to encourage you, if you have a Bible, to take it out. If you don't, to maybe even grab a Bible in the pew in front of you. We're going to get to the scripture in just a second. But we are going to do a bird's eye blast of uh, Acts 16 and 17, right? We're going to kind of really quickly get through there uh, so we can land in this Acts chapter 17. Uh, But I'll kind of describe what happens. So after uh, they have this council at Jerusalem, they decide the Gentiles are included. Paul, uh, with a couple traveling companions, are down near the piano in Jerusalem. It kind of is off the map. So they're down in the piano uh, in Jerusalem. And it says that they're to spread this good news of the gospel, this letter that they've written, to Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. So that kind of number two on the far right of the map. Uh, If you're online, I promise this is going to come bigger on your screen. I just didn't want it to take up your whole screen the whole time. Here it is. You can kind of see that. Uh, This is where we're going to land in just a second. But so they're going up to Antioch, uh, Sicily, and Syria. And so so then Paul and some of his traveling companions, they kind of continue to go through. They pick up Timothy and Lystra, um, which is kind of in the middle of the map. Then what's so cool is they go through Phrygia. And what's just so compelling to me about this, about the gospel message, is that Paul was called to further the gospel. But it wasn't up to Paul to decide how or who got to receive the gospel. He was just obediently responding to the Holy Spirit. And it literally says that as Paul is traveling, they thought they were going to go north, up into Bithynia. I don't know if that's how you say that, but up in the upper north region. And it says the Holy Spirit kept them from going there. So I don't know if the Holy Spirit was like, like pushed them down. I don't know what happened. But for some reason, the Holy Spirit kept them from going north. So Paul's one of the greatest missionaries in all of the world and all of history was kept... From going to a certain place his job was not to discern who gets to receive the Holy Spirit who receives the gospel he's responding to the Holy Spirit's call in his own life holding the hand of God and walking with God as God calls him to tell everybody about the good news so this is really the Holy Spirit's work through Paul so they're kind of going finally they end up on the the coast of Troas and as they're on the coast of Troas uh, Paul has this vision because they're like wow, we're not supposed to go north He has this vision that someone, a man from Macedonia, which is on the other side of the Black Sea, someone on that other side says, Paul, come over here. We need the gospel over on this side. And so as you can see on the map, uh, when Jesus sends the disciples, he says, go into all nations, all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, into Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so literally as Paul crosses, like that's the edge of their known universe, right? Because they're on the edge of the, the land. And so they're going across the end of their known universe into Macedonia. They go up to Philippi. And as they go up to Philippi, a couple months ago, we talked about the book of Philippians, right? And so they meet Lydia. It tells us of that in Acts chapter 16. They meet Lydia, who is the founder and kind of the formational leader for the church in Philippi, the Philippian church. And then it says that they're put in prison. So Paul and Silas and Timothy are put into prison. And there's another prison break story, right? Two weeks ago, we talked about the spirit of God that that the gospel message, the goodness of God, cannot be contained. It cannot be controlled. And here's another prison break story. They break out of prison uh, in this dramatic fashion of how the gospel continues to spread. So that happens in Philippi. Then we kind of come down to where these highlighted sections are, into Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, uh, as Mel read so beautifully, is where we get the books of the 1st and 2nd Thessalonians. So this is where we kind of have that. And Paul's gospel message is he's delivering this good news that was decided at the Council of Jerusalem. His his strategy is he starts in the synagogue, because he's Jewish. That's where the Jewish people gather. He starts in the synagogue to proclaim this good news. And in Thessalonica, it says many Jews, but also a lot of God-fearing Gentiles who are hearing this good news that the gospel is for them also come to have faith in Jesus in Thessalonica. But it says in Thessalonica that also there's quite a few people who find themselves kind of offended and they're afraid because Paul saying something that isn't what they want to hear their gospel is pretty small and so it says there are some other jews who are jealous they don't like what paul is doing how on earth could you start including people that are outside the chosen of god that's not how this works and so they're offended they're worried they're feeling like their power and their control is being brought into question And so they start stirring up the crowd. They're like, we have to get Paul. We have to get his followers, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, they scoot just a little bit adjacent to berea and they start doing the same thing. And as they're proclaiming the same good news, it says even more people came to follow after Jesus. Do you see how the gospel is literally spreading across to the ends of the earth? Do you see how that's happening? I mean, it's just so cool. So the gospel's spreading. The Jews who are kind of jealous in Thessalonica, in the Thessalonian church, Uh, They're actually not in the Thessalonian church because they're Jews who don't like what Paul is doing They go over to Beria to try to capture Paul, Silas, and Timothy So we've now, congratulations, you just worked through a a chapter and a half of the book of Acts Well done, you did outstanding Uh, When that happens, they want to protect Paul Because Paul has a gospel message to share that he's guided by the Holy Spirit So Timothy and Silas, they stay up in Beria And they shuttle Paul (whistles) To the yellow circle into Athens now, Athens is a name we've probably heard before. That's a pretty, you know, known city. We know about Athens. Athens is like the university capital of the world, right? Like in Athens, that's where you have philosophers uh, like Socrates and Plato. Those are people that we've heard of before because of their philosophical thought. So reason rules the day in Athens. Everything is about kind of intellect and university study. There's also a phrase that was going around around the time of Paul that there are more gods in Athens than people. So one estimation is that there were 30,000 deities that were worshipped in Athens. That's a lot of deities. That's a lot of false gods, right? Now, Paul has been charged to spread the good news of the gospel to the Gentile people, but the compromise they came up with were three stipulations, right? Three things that they should continue to live by. Don't eat food sacrificed to idols, don't drink blood, pretty good rule, and abstain from sexual immorality. All three of these things, Athens was a hotbed for this kind of living. Paul finds himself at the epicenter of the antithesis of the agreement he has just made with all the Jewish people in Jerusalem. So when you talk about the gospel going to the ends of the earth, literally to their known universe, he's at the ends of the earth. He's at the very edge. But to talk to these people in Athens who have kind of the daily religious commodity, like things are there's all of these different deities for all these different things and all of the sexual morality, all of these sacrifices being made to all of these different gods, Paul is in some ways beyond the ends of the earth, right? Like this is, this is for the Jewish people, this is like the uncleanest of unclean no one would ever risk getting close to these people no one would ever risk going into this unclean ceremonially you are absolutely out you are in the heart of uncleanliness and it is into this space it is into this community in athens that we find our narrative this morning of the gospel reaching to the ends of the earth and so we've kind of gotten to where we are in chapter 17 uh, and if you have a heading in your bible you'll see it uh, chapter 17 verse 16 is where we talk about in athens so if you have your bible i encourage you acts chapter 17 beginning of verse 16 ironically this is called paul and silas and silas isn't there uh, he's waiting for he is waiting for paul but this is what it says acts chapter 17 beginning of verse 16 while paul was waiting for them in athens he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols Uh, Greatly distressed means that Paul's, like, he has inner turmoil. There's like a hurricane going on inside of him. Like, because he's just walked into, like, the center of uncleanliness. So, Paul is very uncomfortable. His his being has been uh, upset. He's been upset internally. So, he reasoned. Reason is the champion of Athens. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, as if there weren't enough already. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Oropagus, where they said, may we know this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. A little bit of a dig there. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Oropagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship." And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by humans' hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else, all the things. From one man, he made all nations Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands, he proclaims that all people everywhere are to repent, to turn back to God. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this reality, of this man, of this good news to everyone everyone by raising him from the dead when they heard about the resurrection of the dead some of them sneered but others said we want to hear you again on this subject at that Paul left the council some of the people became followers of Paul and believed among them was Dionysius a member of the also a woman named Damaris and a number of others this is the word of God for the people of God thanks be to God Paul has a pretty tall order here, right? Paul is uh, in this place that his inner turmoil, his entire being has flipped upside down because he's like, I am ceremonially clean. Like I am a Jew by the letter of the law. And here I am in this like absolute antithesis of what I believed to be where I'm supposed to be. He's this inner turmoil. And Paul knows he's been called by the Holy Spirit to deliver the gospel message, to bring the good news of Jesus to the ends of the earth, and perhaps in this instance, perhaps even beyond the ends of the earth. And so Paul uh, is pretty brilliant in how he engages in this conversation. And what it says that happens is that Paul is delivering as he normally does, de- delivering the message to the synagogues and people who would listen. But this group of philosophers come and they kind of challenge Paul. They're like, hmm, this isn't some interesting things you're saying. Let's hear what you have to say. And so it says there's some Epicureans and some Stoics. Now, for those of you who studied philosophy, or for those of you who are perhaps pretty intellectual, I am not that person, uh, you might know Epicureans and Stoic philosophy, but in very, very simple layman's terms, in the terms that I can understand, uh, there's a little bit of a difference between these two schools of thought, right? They're They're philosophers, right? So the intellect, idea, reason rules the day. And the Epicureans, they have this kind of belief that gods, these deities, are so far removed from the earthly world, they're so far distant from each other, it's as if, it's as if they don't exist at all. Like, God is, the gods are so far out of there that it doesn't even matter. So when we're going to engage in the world, their philosophy is like, just go be, have pleasure. That's kind of the whole thing. Keep kind of quiet pleasure, live your life that way. A, a really well-known phrase, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. Epicurean thought, right? Eat, drink, and be merry. Like, just live life because the gods are so far removed. The Stoics, on the other hand, had kind of the inverse thought, that deities, God, the divine, and for them, gods, the divine was just a part of everything. They were totally enmeshed with one another, that the the divinity is just a part of trees and life, and, and everything has kind of the potential for divinity in it. And so what you have to do is you kind of just have to receive anything as it comes, Grin and bear it would be a good phrase for the Stoics. Just kind of grin and bear it because the divine is kind of implanted in all of this stuff. So the difference you have between Epicureans and Stoics is Epicureans are like gods way far out there. They don't even matter. They don't exist. Just enjoy what's present. And the Stoics are the opposite way. Like we're going to be Stoic. We're going to take it as it comes because everything is divine, right? Everything has some deity in it. So you have these kind of opposite poles. And Paul finds himself, what am I going to do? Like how I'm brought before these two very different thinking people, but very reasoned people. How am I going to enter into this? And Paul sees his opportunity when it says, I've seen an idol to an unknown God. You see, a lot of times, even in our own vernacular, we talk about things within reason, right? Well, I'll do that if it's within reason. And what Paul is doing here is this group of people who reason is everything, he's inviting them beyond reason reason, to the unknowing, the thing that they do not yet know. And they're trying to know, but it's the thing beyond their knowing. Paul is inviting these philosophers beyond themselves. Paul is inviting them through this open door of the unknown God beyond themselves. Today, after the service, uh, we get to go, uh, and one of my absolute favorite things to do as a pastor, to the waters of baptism. Baptism. And in the waters of baptism, there's a bit of this public proclamation of going beyond ourselves, right? Of going beyond something that we can fully understand or know, and yet we understand and know because God has given us God's word. So there's this beautiful going beyond ourselves that happens. And one of the things Pastor Britt and I and all of our pastoral staff really enjoy doing is talking to those who are coming to be baptized ahead of time. And so this week, uh, I was talking to Roy Ward, uh, who runs our cameras. Roy, you're amazing. Uh, And I got to hear a little bit of Roy's story. Um, Now, when I tell you that Roy is like a million times smarter than I am, I'm not exaggerating. (laughs) Right? Like, Roy is very, very intelligent. And so uh, I was asking Roy a little bit about his faith journey. Like, how'd you come to know Jesus and all these kind of things? And Roy said, well, uh, I came to faith through quantum physics. Excuse me? If I were to give you a list of things that I thought least likely that Roy would say how he came to faith, quantum physics is like at the top, right? I, I was like, Pfft, what? Now, again, Roy, you're incredibly intelligent, so I'm probably going to botch this up a little bit. If I make a mistake, you can correct me afterwards. Go talk to Roy because he really gets this stuff. But here's what I, he helped me kind of in layman's terms understand what he was saying. He had, uh, and Roy, really, correct me if I'm wrong, that in Newtonian physics, things are pretty definite, right? There's things that are set in a trajectory. But in quantum physics, there's this idea that there are things beyond our understanding. right? There are things beyond our knowing or that we don't quite, like we're trying to figure out how to explain things that don't quite make sense. And so for Roy, he said, oh, as I'm studying quantum physics, said, okay, this makes sense. That God could be something beyond my understanding. Is that at least kind of okay, Roy? Like kind of getting it? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, again, super layman's terms. Talk to Roy. He's got it. Isn't that such a profound reality? That Roy's testimony, Roy's story, bears witness to the reality that the gospel goes in places that seem the most unlikely, at least to me, and that the gospel goes to places that sometimes we can receive God when we're beyond ourselves, right? That sometimes the presence of God is the most known when it we're past our knowing. And this is the thing that Paul is capitalizing on here with these philosophers, these people who want to reason. They want to figure these things out. and He's inviting them beyond themselves. He's inviting them through this door of the unknown God to explore and to feel for themselves the kind of reality that he's proclaiming this gospel message. So Roy's story bears testimony to us about how this kind of thing works. And so Paul invites these philosophers through this door into the kind of Parthenon of all of these gods to think about the ways in which they can go beyond themselves, and what Paul does is he uses this word all all over the place to kind of help highlight this idea. So he says as he he kind of talks to these people, he's in the the um, Eropagus and he's explaining to the people, I see that in every way you're religious in all the ways, right? Like, look around, there are idols everywhere. You're all the ways religious. And he says, but I see that the, the doorway for me, for you to understand, to be invited beyond yourself is to this unknowing, beyond what you could know. And then he says that from this place, all things, everything centers on this one God. You see, you're all the ways religious. You have all these ways to describe these things. And I'm telling you, there's someone more powerful than all of that who's the one true God. And all these things are nothing because this is the one God, all the things, everything, all the things are all about God. And this one God gives life and breath and all things to all people. It literally says all the things to all the people. He's like framing their idea of reasoning that all things, every bit, is all centered on this one God. And then he takes it further by saying, you don't make God, but rather, and so God doesn't need things from us, but rather we are the imprint, we bear the image of God through this one person, that all things are reconciled and all nations have been made by this one person. Do you see how he uses this kind of parallel of all with one, right? All the things that you can see, one God. All the reconciling, all the coming together, one person in Jesus. What Paul is trying to do is he's trying to invite the people beyond themselves. And in so doing, he's, he's kind of walking a tightrope. Because you have these Epicureans who think the gods are so removed. They're not in anything. And he's saying, it's everywhere. It's all the things. But at the same time, he's also talking to the Stoics because the Stoics are like, all the things are God. And he's like, no, 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 no. All the things point to one God. Now, have you, um, well, I'm sure you have, but I want you to think for a minute. When you walk into a room and there's a, a distinct smell... That kind of fills the room with smells. Can you think of one of those kind of smells? Like, do you can't know what I'm talking about? Like, uh, sometimes for me, you like walk into a uh, clothing store and the perfume's like, Whoo! right? Like this, the perfume fills the room. In the Pacific Northwest, I've really discovered this one to be true: the smell of fish, right? Like fishy smell, right? Like, Whoo! like you walk into the room and you know the fish is there, like it's just possible. Um, I many of you probably know this, but just so you know, Pastor Brent and I are expecting our third child. And so that means that Pastor Bird is expecting, she's pregnant. Thank you. <clears throat> but uh, as many of you know, when you're expecting or you're pregnant, um, smells can be especially averse, right? Like smells, and one moment they're like, oh, I love that smell. And the other is like, get that away from me, right? The smell of fish can do that anyways. Like if you're pregnant or not, the smell of fish can be like, "Ooh, get that out of here. Uh, sushi had been kind of a, a safe bet for us, right? Like, so I was like, oh, this is great. Pastor Britta had a meeting on Wednesday. She was going to lunch, ironically, to sushi. Uh, <clears throat> and so I went to get my own sushi because I was like, oh, that sounds delicious. So I come back. I'm in the room I'm eating. It's like, oh, this is so good. She was out of the office. She comes She's like, what is that? <laughs> what is that smell? And the smell of fish is just like, like just hits you as you walk through the door, right? Now, unfortunately, we found the exact moment in time when the fish smell that had been so nice before was now a pretty significant aversion. Thankfully, Pastor Britta was going to this lunch meeting and had sushi and it was fine because the uh, restaurant had better ventilation than her office. Uh, but as Pastor Britta left, I like wrapped up all my, my garbage and I like opened the windows, I lit a candle, right? Because like you, to get the smell out of the office, like you got to, you know, it's like, like kind of trying to blow, blow the smell out of the office. Thankfully, when she came back, it was mostly gone and it was good, right? This is kind of what Paul is talking about with God. Now, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but that it gets all over everything, right? The smell of fish was all over our office. But that doesn't mean that everything in our office turned into sushi, right? Like it wasn't like we all of a sudden had a sushi office. It wasn't, that's not how that works. But what happens is it permeates everything. It gets all over everything. And so Paul, in rather brilliant philosophy here, is walking this line by saying God is like everywhere. God is all over everything. The fragrance of Jesus gets over everything. And you walk in it, it fills your very lungs. Life and breath and all the things from this one God. But all the things aren't, in fact, sushi. It's not all fish, but it points to the reality of the fish. Okay, the, the breaks down. God isn't a fish. Anyways, you get what I'm saying, right? The idea is that this smell, it permeates everything, but it doesn't become the thing. And so Paul is walking this line, all the things, all the things, all the things, to help the, both of these philosophers understand the idea to be invited beyond themselves that God is, in fact, closer than their very breath, but is also one God. Just brilliant. And so then Paul, he drives this point home, and this is where it was like, whoo, just captured me this week. All the things point to this reality. In verse 27, it says God did this. God did all the things God was a part of everything so that people, all of the nations, would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. All the things, God being permeating over all the stuff was so that they could reach out and touch him. Now this is profound to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, this word for reach out literally means to touch, to handle. It's like uh, the sensory pool at the aquarium, right? Like put your hands in it. Feel it for yourself. Get your hands kind of dirty with the reality of what you're talking about. But this word that's used here is only used four four times, three other times in Scripture. And it's used by Luke, Luke who writes this book of Acts, one other time in the book of Luke. And it happens in Luke 24, verse 39. If you have your Bible, you can skip back to that, Luke 24, 39. But you'll see that that's an account after Jesus has raised from the dead. And he's appeared to his disciples. And as he comes to the disciples after the resurrection, Luke writes that Jesus says, reach out and touch me and see. Do you see how profound that is? The only other time this word is used in the gospel writer of Luke is when Jesus has come back from the dead and he's with the intimate group of people, these 12 apostles, and he says, reach out and touch me. See that I am real. Feel it for yourself. Get your fingernails dirty with the reality of the resurrection. And what Paul has now just said is the invitation for these people is to reach out and get their fingernails dirty with the reality of the resurrection that they might find God by reaching out and touching the physical reality of the resurrection. This is a a beautiful image in my mind of this, like, wow, this invitation of reaching out and touching God of this, let's hold hands, right? That's such a beautiful invitation. But it's even more profound to me when I think about where Paul is preaching this gospel. He's in the epicenter of the unclean. You don't touch these people. You don't interact with these people. They're beyond the goodness of God. They just have all of these pagan ideas and these pagan rituals. Don't even interact with these awful people. Not only does Paul find himself physically in proximity to these people, in relationship with them, but he invites them, the unclean, the unreachable, the untouchable, to reach out and touch God, whoa, the gospel knows no boundary. The gospel can go anywhere. The gospel can go everywhere. The gospel can touch things that we have deemed unclean. Paul says, reach out and touch it. This is why God did this. So then he says in verse 30, that you're called to repentance, right? That it's not that you just, like, that there isn't still these things, these three things that the Gentiles have determined. Those don't matter. But it says that you're repenting, and repenting is to turn back, right? There's this kinetic energy to turn to God. So you are invited beyond yourself, and God is all over all this stuff, and then you repent because all you're doing in the repentance is to reach out and touch it. That's the invitation. But it says that God has now proclaimed, has charged everybody, everywhere. All the people in all the places. Everybody can reach out and touch God. Everybody can reach out and touch Jesus. The gospel message is for all people. Now, what's interesting about this uh, kind of gospel proclamation of Paul is Paul actually doesn't, at least in recorded that we have, doesn't ever say... Here's the letter we wrote to the Gentiles. Right? He doesn't read them the rules. It's not that the rules aren't important. It's not that the rules don't matter. But Paul's invitation is reach out and touch God. And as you touch God, as you touch Jesus, everything's going to change. All of your life is going to be upended. And all of these things, they'll come and you'll understand these things. But your invitation to finding God is just to reach out and touch him. He's right there everywhere over all the stuff. Talk about an effective evangelistic strategy, right? Paul's invitation is to invite people beyond themselves to the unknown God and then to open up their eyes to see that God is a part of all the things and all the stuff, literally all the things everywhere and that everybody, all the people are reconciled through this one person, Jesus. And the way in which to realize that reality is to reach out and touch it because it's right there closer than your very breath. To reach out and touch Jesus. Now, in verse 31, Paul drives this point home because he says that there will be a person, a day that Jesus, the uh, person, this one person, will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. So the way to eternal life, the way to full living is through this one person, Jesus. To reach out and touch him, you find that reality. But it says he has given proof of proof of this, proof, proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When it says proof of this, guess what it means in literal translation? It means to hold on to the conviction of the truth. Given proof, literally translated, means to hold it for yourself, to hold faith for yourself. This is the proof he's given. If you hold on to Jesus, your entire world is going to change. Everything is going to be different. And this is the invitation of the gospel message to us, that through the resurrection, because Jesus has been raised from the dead, all people everywhere can reach out and touch God. That is the gospel message. Through the resurrection, because Jesus has come back to life, everybody everywhere can reach out and touch the good news of the gospel. And so our invitation as people who seek to follow Jesus together is to reach out and touch God right, to reach out and hold God's hand. Let's hold hands. Let me walk you and guide you. And it doesn't mean that the rules or the regulations or the things don't matter, but they come as we are being transformed, following after this one God, through this one person, Jesus. Through the resurrection, all people can reach out and touch Jesus. They can touch this thing that is so holy and good and because it's holy and good, because they're touching it, everything changes. Their entire life is reoriented. Repent. Turn around. Be with me. Let's hold hands. And so as we come to the communion table, this is really what we're proclaiming. Let's hold hands. Let's hold hands with one another and let's hold hands With God as we come closer to Jesus and we are all transformed in the process. That we would come to proclaim the goodness of this table, the goodness of the gospel message that Jesus invites us to be in community, to be in the body. What's like so remarkable to me about this at the very end is it says that a couple people, uh, a fair number of people who are in the unreachable place, they are, it says they're literally joined to Paul. Right? They are holding hands. That's what happens. When Paul preaches, reach out and touch God, they join together and God just, just keeps changing things. The gospel just keeps reaching. And so as we come this morning, as we come to this table, may it be an opportunity for us to reach out and to touch God, to feel this truth of this gospel message and then to invite others to reach out and to do the same. So as we come to this table, would you take your hands and hold them together as we pray? O Lord, our God, you have given to us the glorious gospel of our risen Savior, Jesus, who is our Savior and Master. Grant that as we joyfully receive the good news for ourselves, that we may gratefully share it with others and give glory to you by whose grace alone we are what we are. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord.